We come in the name of Jesus Christ, and we seek to glorify his name. I invite you to open your Bibles today to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20 at verses 1 through 16 is our text today. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there's a big one right here. I think you can borrow it. And it's got large print, too, so that's helpful for us. Matthew 20, 1 to 16. Just have that open. And just before we study this wonderful text, I want us to notice the text in chapter 19 that comes before all this, because it really sets the scene for what we're about to read in chapter 20. And as we read chapter 19, we're introduced at verse 16 to a rich man who calls out to Jesus. And um, Jesus calls him to leave his wealth and follow him. The man, though, we are told, went away sad because he had great wealth, verses 21 and 22. And apparently, he not only had great wealth, but wealth had him. He couldn't leave it. He couldn't follow Jesus. And Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And this causes the disciples great distress. We see it verse 25. And they ask, who can be saved? I mean, if the rich, and the man also appears to be very moral, if they can't enter the kingdom of heaven, who can? I mean, that's what our culture says. Those are the ones who will go to heaven. He was a good man. And Peter, at verse 27, raises this question. What about us? He says at verse 27, we have left everything to follow you. And it was true. He and the other disciples had left their jobs and their families, any kind of security that they had in order to follow Jesus. According to the world's standards, they had left it all. And Peter asks at the rest, in the rest of verse 27, what will we get in return? And Jesus says to him and the rest of the disciples at verse 28, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, he's speaking of the end times, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is saying there will be a place for the 12 disciples of privilege and responsibility in the world to come. And then he goes on with, the word for, with a word for the rest of us, and he says at verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. In effect, anyone who has been touched by God's grace and has followed him wholeheartedly will be rewarded, Jesus says. If you've left a house, a family, or fields, you will receive much more from God, Jesus says. God is no one's debtor. And this is a great relief to all those who serve in the kingdom of God. Isn't that a wonderful truth? God is no one's debtor. You'll not forget the service. You'll not forget the sacrifice that you give to him. 
But then Jesus says one last thing at the end of chapter 19, which he repeats at the end of our text, which you're going to read in a moment, in chapter 20, verse 16. And he says this at verse 30. But many of you who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. What? What? We were doing so well agreeing with Jesus up to the... He was talking about rewards and receiving a hundredfold. That's great stuff. We're saying amen to that, aren't we? That's good stuff, Jesus. But what's this? What do you mean the first will be last and the last will be first? That doesn't sound fair. Does that sound fair to you? What kind of kingdom is this? What kind of rules govern this kingdom? So what do you mean, Jesus? The first will be last and the last will be first. Well, to explain it, Jesus tells a parable. And the parable we are given is in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. And we hear God's word given to us today. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers a denarii for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarii. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarii. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us and have borne the burden of the work, uh, us who have borne the burden of the work and, and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Don't you agree? Did, didn't you agree to work for a denarii? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is God's word to us today, and we give thanks to him for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think on your word, may your spirit come and speak to each one of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the principle that is at work in the kingdom of God. 
And Jesus says, let me picture it for you. Early at the start of the working day, a landowner has, well, he has some needs. So he hires a bunch of workers to come and work in his fields. And they agree for a wage for the day. It's the usual day's wage, a denarii. It was the going rate for a day's work at that time. It was fair and it was agreed upon by the workers and the employees. Now, perhaps discovering that he needed more workers to finish the job, the landowner goes back to the marketplace. It was the place to hire help in those days, and he hired some more workers. He does this at 9, he does this at 12, and he does it again at 3. And he does it one more time, says the text, at verse 6, at the 11th hour, or 5 o'clock, an hour before quitting time. He finds some workers who are in need, and he hires them also. Then at verse 8, we discover that it's quitting time. Time for the workers to get paid. And the landowner pays the last group of workers first, and he very generously gives them a full day's wage for an hour of work. Wow! How generous! Amazing! Well, you can imagine the wide eyes of those who were hired first. You can hear the wheels turning in their head, can't you? You can imagine a full day, day worker saying to themselves, Oh, if the landowner gave that much to those who only worked an hour, how much will he give to us who've worked the whole day? And then you read verse 10. And when it comes their turn to get paid, and they pick up their pay envelope with great anticipation, what do they see? They see a full day's wage, the same amount as the others received. What's this? They grumble. We've worked all day in the blazing sun and the blistering heat of the day, and we get the same amount as those who only worked an hour? This is not fair. What kind of kingdom is this? And the landowner says at verse 13, I'm not being unfair. It's what was agreed upon. I have given you a fair wage. Why are you jealous that I'm generous? I'm the landowner. Can't I do with my money as I please? Go on your way. And so Jesus says, the last will be first and the first will be last. So what do we learn? Why does Jesus teach this parable? What is he trying to teach Peter, who says, we have left everything to follow you, Jesus. What then will there be for us? Peter wants to know about reward. And Jesus teaches about grace. Well, what do we learn about grace from this parable? Well, I believe three things. We learn about the nature of God's grace. We learn about our need for God's grace. And we learn about the basis of God's grace. The nature of God's grace, need for God's grace, and the basis of God's grace. First, we learn about the nature of God's grace. There are four qualities that I believe we see here. 
We really could spend all morning here, couldn't we? The nature of God's grace, partly because God's grace is unmerited favor towards you, his unearned love, his undeserving attention, his willingness to forgive and justify you is deep and it is multifaceted so that we could spend the whole morning just talking about it, couldn't we? There is that. But really, couldn't we just spend the whole morning thinking about the nature of God's grace? Because it's so wonderful. It's so wonderful. As the hymn writer says, it's amazing. Who's experienced anything like this before? And that's the first quality of God's grace that is highlighted here. It is unworldly. It is so beyond our experience that we often fail to believe that it's true. This is not what we're used to. The workers who were hired first say as much, don't they? We're told in verse 11, they grumble when they receive their pay packet because those who went before them received as much for less work. This isn't how the world works. And isn't it true? When I stand in line to get my meal at Tim Hortons and the girl at the cash says, Can I help whoever is next, please? That's me. I'm second in line. She doesn't say, Can I help the last in the line, please? She'd have a riot on her hands if she did that, wouldn't she? Have you you ever experienced the idea that the first will be last and the last first? Not at Tim Hortons, you haven't. And what about school? Do you see that principle at work there? No. What would have happened if in my last year of high school, in which I got 51% in math, I'm really proud of that 51%, by the way. That's why I married Janet. Not only, well, one of the qualities. She's great at math. 51% in math, my final high school year. That's what I got. And Tom Zeeb, a fellow student, got 98% in math But what would have happened if I was the one the University of Waterloo called on to offer a scholarship in their mathematics program? That's not how it works. Not in the world. People with a 51% average are not offered scholarships. The last do not become first, and the first do not become last. Not in this world. And that's what makes this parable so shocking. It's not what happens in the world. If it did, if this is what happened in the world, you would call the Ontario Board of Labor reporting this landowner for being unfair to his employees. This is not how you treat people who have worked the whole day for you. This grace is not of this world. And really, those of us who have grown up in the church who know our Bibles, shouldn't be surprised by this. I mean, this is the way God operates all the time. Read through the book of Genesis, and you see this principle at work all the way through. The people that the world would choose are not chosen by God. No, no, no. It's it's soft Abel, who was chosen over rugged Cain. It's second-born Isaac, who was chosen over first-born Ishmael. It is... Uh, second, it, it is, God chooses that schemer, Jacob, over the manly, strapping Esau. 
And who is blessed by Jacob? The elder Manasseh or the younger Ephraim? It's the younger Ephraim. Read Genesis 48, and you see how Jacob crosses his hands to bless the younger, therefore culturally less privileged, over the oldest Manasseh. And if you think of the women, as you trace the family tree of Jesus, the Savior of the world, it is, is it traced through the beautiful, fertile Hagar? No, it comes through the barren, old, wrinkled Sarah. Does it come through the beautiful Rachel or the homely Leah? Do you see how God's grace is diametrically opposed to this world? It's the nature of God's grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 to 29, he chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. It's the way God works. It's the nature of God's grace so that nothing that is done for him can be attributed to strength or beauty or wisdom of this world. And what a wonderful attribute of God's grace. Take it in. God's grace is opposed to how the world operates. The world thinks that the moral rich man should be the first one in heaven. No! Take that in. Because it means that God is for you, little old you, with all your faults and with all your flaws. God is for you. He doesn't overlook you because you got a 51% in your math mark, so to speak. He doesn't overlook you with all your sin. He offers you grace. But not only this. It is unworldly, and it is also wonderful. We aren't told the reaction of the workers who were hired last when they opened up their pay. We are simply told at verse 9 that they each received a denarii. But the wonder of it isn't lost on us, is it? We see the wonder of it. We can see that they did nothing to deserve such a wage. They only worked an hour, yet they received a full day's wages. It's a wonderful gift. There are times... When we are given earthly glimpses of this heavenly attribute, I think of my life and I think of the many times that I've received grace from people. I, for a number of years, for 30 years, I was a pastor and I did a number of stupid things and said a number of silly things, being upfront, being a person who speaks a lot. Sometimes you say silly things and people have offered me grace in return. I was so fortunate to have one gracious congregation after another. They needed to be. They had me as a pastor. And as a husband or a father, I've done something insensitive to fellow brothers or sisters or have offered and, 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 and yet they continue to give me grace. My wife, what a gracious woman to live with me and my kids. Ever experienced grace? The one that sticks out in my mind is an example of my mom. 
In my teen years, I had a terrible addiction to pornography. This was in the days before computers. Yeah, I'm that old. And, but it was still, it wasn't hard to access pornography. You could purchase it, purchase it from the local convenience store, no problem. The owner there didn't care that I was a kid buying pornographic material. And I'd hide it under my mattress. I wasn't the smartest fellow. My mom found it. She made the bed. And she saw it. She saw all that horrid garbage that I was looking at and reading. I'm sure it made it sick to her stomach. But she wrote out a note and she left it. It said this. Dear Tom, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Philippians 4, verse 8. That's it. She left it on top of the stack, put it under the mattress for me to find, and I remember finding it. Oh, I remember my shame and my horror. My mother had found this and had looked at it. I didn't know what to do. Do I run? Do I talk to her? What do I do? I, I remember burning it and thinking that I'll let her bring it up. But she never did. Day after day, she went on as if nothing happened until after a couple of days, I couldn't take it anymore. We were sitting at breakfast and I burst out one morning and I said, Mom, what about this? And I confessed all the mess. And she simply said, Oh, Tom. And she expressed her love for me. There was no finger wagging. There was no shouting. She had already given me a word of correction in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. But there was affirmation and love. I didn't deserve that. It was all of grace, unmerited, undeserved love. And I'll never, ever, ever, ever forget thinking, is this what God's grace is like? And that perhaps is a glimpse of God's grace, but it is only the smallest resemblance of it. For our rebellion, our self-promotion, our hatred and bitterness and darkness is much greater than a little bit of pornography hid under a mattress. It is a heart full of the worst possible wickedness. It is a mouth full of lies. Listen to how we're described in Romans chapter 3. All have turned away and have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open. Open graves and their tongues practice deceit. This is describing not someone out there, but describing you and me. Their mouths are full of cursing, the text continues, and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That describes the darkness of our soul, my friends. And yet, 
And yet, it is to you and to me that God comes in the person of Jesus Christ and lays down his life on the cross for our sin, and he dies for us and instead of us so that we can know life to the full. It's all of grace. Consider the wonder of it. But more than this, We're talking about the nature of God's grace. It is unworldly, not of this world. It is wonderful. And we see from this parable that God's grace is generous. Again, again, think of those who are hired at five in the afternoon, an hour before quitting time, and they're expecting to get an hour's wage. But instead, when they open up their pay, they discover in his grace they have received a full day's wage. There's the impact of the parable. There's the focus. The last are first in the kingdom of God. It's that generous. And that's you and me. Our trouble is that when we read this parable, we identify ourselves with those who are hired first. We're the good ones. We're the hard, we are the We're the hard workers. But really, to understand the wonder of it, to grasp the utter generosity of God's grace, you have to picture yourself as the one hired at the end of the day. I mean, really, really, what do we have to offer to God that he would give his one and only son to die on the cross for you and for me? You think your little bit of goodness would merit him dying for you? No! This was the rich man's problem. He thought he had something to offer to God. But in reality, we have all been hired at the 11th hour. And if you see yourself there, it makes all the difference. Then we discovered that we've received more of God's favor than we ever deserved. Peter asked Jesus, what will there be for us? Really, Peter? Don't you realize that we've all come like beggars to the back door of a restaurant looking for a few crumbs, a few leftovers from the kitchen, but instead we're ushered into the restaurant, given the finest seat near the window with a great white linen tablecloth and the finest meal that the chef could prepare. We come looking for forgiveness, and he comes... And we come through faith, and then he says, well, here, you come through faith in my son, Jesus Christ. You're looking for forgiveness. Well, look, here is hope, also peace and love and acceptance and joy and supernatural strength and the reality of his presence day after day after day in your lives. So we are made to realize in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Put yourself with the workers who have hired at five because that's where you are. That's where we are. And we are made to realize that God's grace is wonderfully generous. My friends, some of you think that God cannot forgive you of your sin. In your mind, it is too horrid, too large, too repetitive, whatever. But you need to realize that God's grace is generous. 
He doesn't restrict his giving. He is telling you today that his grace is enough to forgive your sin. It is large enough to enable you to have a fresh start. It is the nature of God's grace. It is generous. But not only that, this parable teaches us that that it is the nature of God's grace to persistently seek us out. I love that this parable begins at verse 1, the kingdom of heaven, which is a way of saying the rule of God, the kingship of God, the character of God, is like a landowner who went early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. It's a wonderful nature of God's grace. It seeks you out. It looks for you. As God went looking for Adam and Eve in the garden after the rebellion, saying, where are you? So God in his grace is seeking you out. And not just once. Look at the persistence of the landowner here. He returns to the marketplace again and again and again, even to the 11th hour. The last hour, he persists in offering grace. Jesus told three other parables that gloriously depict God's gracious seeking in the Gospel of Luke. He tells of a shepherd who brings home 99 sheep but lost one and goes back out to find the one that was lost. He tells of a woman who lost a coin and turns up her whole house just so she can find that one coin. He tells of a father who eagerly searches the horizon for his one son who abandoned the family farm, the family name, and the family heritage in search of what the world could offer. And the father persistently searches for his son to return until one day, way off in the distance, he sees something that resembles the figure of his son, and the text says the father ran to his son. This is the nature of God's grace. It's always seeking you out always invading your self-absorbed ways, always wanting to drown out the noise of the world so that you can hear his words of love and grace toward you. Even today, God's grace is seeking you out. So that's the nature of it. It's not of this world. It's wonderful. It's generous. It persistently searches you out. But what of our need? What do we learn in this parable about our need? And I think the parable tells us how we need to be grasped by grace. We need to allow grace to permeate our thinking and our behavior. Look at the progression. Peter asks in chapter 19, verse 27, what will we get out of this? After all, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus tells a parable about rewards. Those who work the longest and the hardest grumble. They grumble not so much that the others have received grace, Look at the words, verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 12. They grumble that these men who were hired last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us. They aren't complaining about their pay as much as they're complaining about the elevation of those who were hired last. You've made them equal to us. And this is stressed again at verse 15, when the landowner asked the disgruntled workers, are you envious because I'm generous? 
I think these workers have failed to recognize that even though they've received grace, after all, the landowner didn't need to hire them at all. He he went looking for them at verse 1. But even though they have received grace, they failed to express grace to those who were hired last. Now, when we apply this parable, we often apply it to salvation. We say the ones who were hired first are the people who made a confession of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord at an early age and and have been faithful to God throughout their lives. And those who were hired at the 11th hour are those who have made a deathbed confession of Christ and they are both welcomed into God's eternal kingdom. And that's the interpretation of the parable. Many of us have no trouble with that. We rejoice when a loved one whom we have prayed all our lives for finally comes to know Jesus Christ and confesses him as Savior and Lord, even if it's on their deathbed. Hallelujah. That's great. Thank you, God, for answering our prayers. Thank you for bringing them into the kingdom. But where we have trouble with this parable is when it's applied to the here and now when it's applied to life. We hate it when the first become last and the last become first. You're angry in a restaurant when people who have obviously ordered their meals after you are served first. You're upset When your child is overlooked for the music award because they obviously, your child obviously deserves it more than the child who won. You're upset when a fellow employee gets promoted over you, though you are more qualified. You may even become bitter when a younger sibling becomes better in life and has more success in life than you do. Or in the church. When someone is recognized over you, even though you put in just as much work, even more, into the Sunday school or keeping the books or running the sound system, no one recognizes you, no one thanks you for the work you do. Why are they recognized for the work that they do? What? What? And you can think of all sorts of examples of injustice, can't you? And to be sure, to be sure, we need to stand against injustice in this world. That's not what I'm saying. We need to strive to be fair. But I would like to suggest that we need to take a deep look at why we're angry, why we are upset, why are we bitter in such circumstances? I mean, beyond the surface of it, why do you react when the first become last and the last become first in this world? And I'd like to suggest to you, it's because we've not experienced God's grace fully in our lives. We're not gripped by it completely. It's okay when it's applied to the spiritual realm. It's okay when, but we have failed to translate it into the rest of our lives, into the here and now. We want privilege and recognition. I mean, even the disciples want that. I mean, even after hearing the parable, the disciples still don't get it. If you look down at verse 20 of chapter 20, you see the mother of James and John asked Jesus for a favor that her two sons would sit in the seats of privilege in his kingdom. They don't understand the parable that he just told them. And Jesus has to teach them again. Verse 25, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, 
and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. There's that word first again. And there's that reversal again. Listen, you can only serve others if your life is gripped by the reality of God's grace. I mean, think of it. We all recognize that we've experienced grace from God's hands. We, we, we recognize that. We understand it. We agree that we are sinners in need of God's grace. Do we agree? Yes. Yes, we agree, right? Just nod your head. Yes, I agree. We're sinners in need of saving, and even though we have nothing to offer to God, he has graciously sent his son to die for you and for me. We all agree to that. We are saved by grace, but here is our need. Do we live by grace? Do we allow grace to grasp us so that we are able in our behaviors and in our attitudes to elevate the last to be first and humble ourselves to be a servant of others? Do we have the grace not to be angry when the last become first? Do you see our need for God's grace to help us overcome it, overcome our feelings of superiority and inferiority. Think of inferiority. Paul introduced me today as Nora Gordon's father. What a label. I'm so proud to be Nora Gordon's father. I speak to me when I first came here. People say, oh, welcome. Glad you're at Forest Baptist. Who are you? I'm Nora Gordon's. Oh, you're Nora Gordon's father. We just think the world of Nora Gordon. We're so glad you're here. And I, in my inferiority, am elevated like this. I'm Nora Gordon's father. We're Nora Gordon's parents. We're special. (laughs) My friends, that's nothing. Nothing compared to the truth that I am a child of God. And in my inferiority, I need to get over the fact that I need to link myself with someone else. If it's not Nora Gordon, then it's Mark Cullen is my brother. Well, I'm Mark Cullen's brother. Some of you don't even know him, that's good. But anyway, I look... When you are grasped by the grace of God, it helps you overcome your inferiority because it doesn't matter. You realize you're a child of God, an heir of the kingdom of God, and there is nothing. You don't need to attach yourself to anyone else. You don't need to introduce yourself as Nora Gordon's father. No, I'm Tom Cullen and I'm a child of God. There you can clap. And we clap for God, for what he's done. But also in our superiority, if you realize you're a sinner in need of grace, you're no longer elevated beyond everyone else. It doesn't just address our inferiority, it addresses our superiority. The refugee who comes to our country, are you any better? Do you look down on them? No. 
because you realize that at one time you were a foreigner to God without hope and without God in this world. But God in his grace reached out to you and made you his child so that now you're no longer a foreigner and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. So you are able to relate to the refugee, not with condensation or even with paternalistic mothering, but with an understanding that you are a refugee too. Do you get it? If you're gripped by the grace of God, it changes you. Not just your understanding of salvation, but the way you look at the world, the way you look at those who should be first. If you're a sinner saved, but let, let me make it as practical as possible. Think of the person who gets served first in the restaurant. No, no, no. Think of the person who jumps ahead of you in the line at Foodland. Think of that person. You're in line. The person behind you somehow gets served before you. If you're gripped by God's grace, you no longer are mad because you see that as a reflection of your worth. Think, what am I, chopped liver that I'm not served first? Instead, you look at the whole scenario and say, wow, that's exactly what God has done for me. I was the last in line. At one time, I was like one of the workers who was hired at the 11th hour. I was in complete darkness, dead in my sin, but God in his grace lifted me up and made me a kingdom of, a part of the kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Does the reality of God's grace grip you so that your attitudes and behavior are changed? And we say, how does this happen? Thirdly, last point. The basis of grace. And the basis of grace is that God's son was first. And he became last for you and for me. Don't you find it interesting? You scan your eye down across the page of our text. You see that right after Jesus teaches us this parable about first and becoming last and the last becoming first, he says to his disciples at verse 18, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Listen, Paul started the whole service by reading Colossians for us. Jesus Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, the one who had the place of privilege, the firstborn. All the fullness of God dwelt in him. In the book of Revelation, he is called the Alpha and the Omega, the Alpha. He is the first. He was rich beyond our imagination. All the riches of heaven belong to him. But do you know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. The first became last, so that you, the last, might become first. 
so that you might know the great love of God. The first became last. He died a horrible death on the cross alone, having been beaten, stripped, naked, mocked, and ridiculed. He became last, even bearing the shame and the horror of your sin and the wrath of God for you and for me. Why? Because it's all of grace. He became last. He who was truly first, not wise, rather, he who was first so that we could become We could become first. We were last, not wise by human standards, not influential, not of noble birth, that we may be elevated by his grace and be called a child of God. It's all of grace. Peter asks, what will there be for us, Jesus? What will there be for us, O Peter? Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, let the wonder of his grace move you and so grip your attitudes and behavior that you realize that though you deserve to be last, God in his grace has shown you favor, generous, unworldly favor through faith in his Son. Let us pray. Oh God, we bow our heads before the wonder of your grace toward us. We are truly humbled, for we recognize our sin and our place before you. And that you so elevate us and make us your children through faith in the sacrifice of Christ. We are in awe and filled with thanksgiving. We praise your name, O God. And we want to so live for you and be gripped by your grace that other people around us, that that we would make the first last and elevate others around us. We would not worry about our standing in this world, for we have a standing before you that is sure and certain and cannot be taken away because of Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. Thank you, Father, for what you've done for us. May we people truly live and demonstrate your grace. Amen.